2022 is the 15th anniversary of Record Store Day, an idea that is the epitome of if you build it, they will come. Started as a conversation between a group of hungover retail folks in 2007, Record Store Day has grown to be arguably the premier event in the retail calendar and has had a huge part to play in the resurgence of vinyl sales around the world. Welcome to the future of what? I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. On today's episode, we're gonna hear the story of Record Store Day from the perspective of the people who started it, retailers who it's affected, and the man who wrote a book about it. It's all coming up on The Future of What. My guest today is Carrie Colleton. She is the co-founder of Record Store Day, and she also does marketing for the Department of Record Stores, which is a an indie record store coalition. Carrie, welcome to the future of what? Hey, Portia. Thanks for having me. Having yes. me back, I yes, guess. Yes, having you back. I mean, it's been a while, but... It's been, it's been several years, and we were able to do it in person before. Yeah. Well, some, that day shall come again, I swear. <laughs> I believe you. It will happen. So today we are talking about the 15th anniversary of Record Store Day, and I interviewed Larry Jaffe about his book, which is pretty comprehensive about the origins. And what I loved best about it was that it sounded like you guys were like super hungover (laughs) at a conference (laughs) and you guys, somebody was just like, what if we did this thing? And everyone was like, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So it sounded like we were super hungover. Well, that's good because that was accurate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, totally accurate. I have I have vague flashes of that meeting. Um, <laughs> however, like, like a lot of the things that go on in the world, there was a, a little bit of planning behind that and a little bit of backstory, which Larry's book does go into. And Record Store Day... For, for better or worse, I think for better, really isn't one person's genius idea. It's the semi-genius idea of a lot of people pulled together and, and turned into this thing. So and a lot of those people who had these vague ideas of, we should celebrate record stores. We should do what Free Comic Book Day does. Hey, what if we just had a party and told the press that, you guys are really lazy and getting it wrong. Record stores aren't dead. They all kind of came together in a in a hungover haze. I, I feel like it was in a, a coffee shop. I, I vaguely remember sitting on the back of a sofa and, <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, this sounds fun. This also sounds like a lot of work. Oh, <laughs> but, man. But yeah, I mean, as some of the best things in rock and roll do... It all came out of a haze. Yeah. And it's so funny because I think in the book, he doesn't actually say you guys were all hungover, but it's just the way he interviews everybody who's like, I don't really remember. (laughs) I'm like, "Mm, I can piece that one together in the music industry. (laughs) Yeah. I think there there was an issue where somebody was saying, oh, this person was definitely there. And then that person is like, I was absolutely not there. Yeah. Not even (laughs) in the state. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. It's pretty funny. In spirit, everybody was there. Uh, exactly, exactly. And people, you know, it, it, it's so funny because I we did, I think, we missed the first record store day, Kill Rockstars, but then we did the second one. But I just remember being super excited about it from the beginning, you know, just thinking, what a great idea. And I think a lot of people felt that way, just like, what a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it really is, you know, if I stand aside and don't look at the, the role I played, it is a good idea. What's that to love about it? Right. It's a, it's a party at a record store, which consists of anything that record store and its world want it to be. And I do love the fact that Kill Rock Stars, because when I was younger, that was, you know, one of my labels. Uh, one of the labels that you follow, kind of. I was yeah. apparently very obsessed with the whole Pacific Northwest thing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But I was really excited that you guys came on really early on. And, and there were labels like, like you guys who did come on really early on and have been with us throughout the whole thing. And it's kind of nice 15 years on, which is still a number that, that blows my mind. But it's nice to look back at 
everything that we did in the beginning in our, you know, cute, naive young days <laughs> that were that were really great and really in the spirit of what Record Store Day still is, which is just a party that celebrates I like to think of it as the three groups of people who populate a record store, which is the people who work in it, the people who shop in it, and the people who get what they sell at a record store into a record store, whether that's the artist or the label or distribution and all of that. Yeah. And it's a unique, I mean, it's sort of a unique experience in the ecosystem, right? I mean, I think that's what's great about record stores is that you can walk in physically. I mean, you know, except for the last couple of years, but in normal (laughs) times you can walk in physically and it's a whole, it's a whole experience. Like it's a whole different, and you know, I'm not here to slam on, on digital services because you know, the industry changes and things, you know, technology is wonderful and whatever, but you know, it's not the same, you know, browsing Spotify or a streaming service is a different type of experience than physically walking into a record store. And I I may partially say that because I'm super old and I remember the days of, you know, being 18 or 16 and going to Tower Records in New York and just, you know, I mean, my friends and I would go to Tower Records after school in high school and stay there till dinner time. I mean, it was like hours, hours. Yeah, it's sort of sort of like an amusement park, you know, in a way because everything is different and new. And I, I will say that, you know, there's no census data for this, but anecdotally and in my own personal life, I have a 16 year old niece. She loves going to record stores and not because we drag her. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't love it if that was why. Right. But stores are constantly, you know, you look at their Instagram posts. It's not, you know, old people that just are being nostalgic about going to a record store. It's young people. It's, it's really vibrant in the record stores of, of today. And I don't think that feeling of going in and, and talking to another human. Now, whether you actually talk to them a lot about music or just the idea that they are around and you're all listening to the same thing on the now playing rack and you're looking at records and there's somebody three rows over looking at records and it's just a communal feeling. And I've said this so many times, so apologies to anybody who's ever read an interview with me. There is something about not all of your experiences being in the cloud or on a screen, and it's it's a zen thing, and I really think that continues through, I mean, Record Store Day is at its heart about record stores, the actual store. Of course, we've been very associated and very proudly so with the increase in vinyl sales and vinyl coming back. But it continues through, like the human experience of being in a record store continues through with physical media and putting on the record and looking at the liner notes and actually interacting with it. And music is an art form that that really kind of forces you to interact with it in order to really understand it and experience it in its whole. You have to interact with it. It can't just be background music. And I think a record store is, is kind of like a an embodiment of that. You know, it starts there and goes through to the actual experience of listening to what you brought home from the record store. Right. It's foregrounding music, right? Which is kind yeah. of awesome. And that's not to say that, you know, as you were saying, like streaming services and all of that stuff don't have a place. Obviously, they do. We're not Luddites. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and, and I actually think background music is nice, too. You know, it, it keeps me calm sometimes. It, it, it helps me f- actually focus on other things. But when I want to experience a record, um, there was an interview once, and I, I can never remember exactly who it was, so I always attribute it to Johnny Marr because <laughs> Why not? it, Go it for sounds it. like sure. something he would say. <laughs> And it's basically, if if I'm listening to a streaming service or, or whatever, if I'm listening to something on my earbuds, I know I'm listening to music, but hours later, I couldn't tell you what music I was listening to. If I'm listening to a record, and you could really extend that to CDs as well, if I'm listening to that, I can tell you exactly what I was listening to because I was consciously listening to it and I was involved in the act of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think both of those situations have a place. But obviously, I'm a little more biased towards the actively being involved in it. Well, that's I mean, that is the nice part about the music ecosystem today is that we can have it all. 
you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Just, just this morning before we started talking, um, recently the RIAA put out their, you know, state of 2021 report. And, um, I, I belong to far too many Facebook groups devoted to vinyl collecting and CD (laughs) collecting far too many. And, and, and there was somebody who posted a graph that showed, cause everybody got excited about vinyl and even CDs, you know, rising in 2021. And somebody posted a graph that showed that physical media was still only 11% of all music sales in 2021. And that streaming was really still the big monster and, you know, and they just titled it perspective. And it was meant to kind of like, you guys don't get so excited about physical. And I was just like, yeah, but my perspective is the fact that physical media in 2022 is 11%, which is higher, which it, it is increasing. That means that it's enough that, that businesses, you know, the business side of things, it's enough revenue for them to still consider physical an option. And in my world, that's a win. Right. Absolutely. There's still a place to go, but we still have that option of physical. We're not forced to only do it streaming and digital. And and I really hope that there are magazines, books. I mean, I'm really sad that Entertainment Weekly is no longer going to actually, first of all, it's not weekly, but it's no longer going to be a physical magazine. I have to now look at the stuff on a screen and that kind of makes me mad. Yeah. You know, and Entertainment Weekly is really a bummer too, because um, something happened like two years ago where now I can't see anymore. And the font in Entertainment Weekly is so <gasps> tiny. Ridiculous. Right? Ridiculous. So I actually had to stop reading Entertainment Weekly because I was too vain to get like reading glasses for the longest time. <laughs> so I kind of just like let my subscription lapse. Now now I gave up and now I wear re- reading glasses. So, hey, come back to my life. But you, you can't because now you're going to be digital. <laughs> right. Now it's going to be digital. Sad. And you know what? It's not just them either. But you know what I think? That, and I have no insider knowledge. But I think that's because... They don't necessarily print it out to proof it, you know, oh, like yeah. if you proof it on a screen, your clarity is better than if you print it out. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, so there's a lot of these like white type on a light background and it looks really great design wise and you probably can read it on your massive screen. But then when you print it out, you know, yeah. not so much. <laughs> yeah. Plus I'm old. <laughs> That's well, just what happens. They make really cool looking readers. And ah. you and I have been on enough Zoom calls for you to know that I have those ridiculous blue light glasses. So Yeah. It looks good. It's good. It's a good look on you, Carrie. Thanks. Thanks, Portia. So yeah, there's not a lot to really say because Record Store Day has been <laughs> massively successful. People love it. You know, it's it's checked all the boxes that you guys thought that you, you know, hoped at the beginning. I mean, it's certainly increased vinyl consumption. It's increased people going into record stores. It's, you know, kids are now interested in vinyl. It's just great. Yeah, it is. I mean, there are people who find fault with it and it has brought up issues and maybe heightened issues that existed already in the industry. And, and absolutely record store day has, has checked all of our boxes from the beginning because first of all, we didn't really have any, like we didn't really know what to expect of this day and we didn't know what to grow it into like we didn't have a a path for it to grow because we kind of took every opportunity as it came every partnership as it came and thought okay well what can we do here how do we grow this oh this is exciting let's go down this way or right or geez it seems like the stores really need us to do this so let's do this and some of the things that have happened in the past 15 years, we never would have, I mean, we didn't have any idea about being part of Black Friday when we started, but mm-hmm. but pretty clearly we noticed, oh, you know, Record Store Day is a great marketing campaign and there were reasons why we chose April, a lot of reasons. And, but this, this, this day after Thanksgiving, for better or worse in America, is when people go shopping. Right. And almost more importantly, it's when the press and the media and pop culture is has shopping on the brain. And if there's this is going to be the biggest story about shopping in the country, we want record stores to be a part of that story. So how do we do that? How do we how do we kind of subvert it and and say, look, 
if you're going to go shopping for presents for the people you love and you're going to do it on this day, go to a record store because there's, there's nothing in that store that won't make a good present for somebody mm-hmm. on your list, no matter what it is. I mean, whether it's like a keychain hanging at the counter is like an impulse buy or whatever it is. And so let's, let's make a smaller list of these great titles. Maybe they're more expensive than they were on record store day. Maybe it's more of a box set. Maybe it's a bigger special thing, but let's try and be part of that story. And it worked. A lot of stores were like, yeah, Black Friday never meant anything to us because people were just going to Best Buy to, to beat each other up and come out with cheap toasters. <laughs> so we would try to turn that on its head a little bit and say, if you're going to give presents, you know, make them cool, make them good and feel good about where you bought them. Because, you know, again, the store is the heart of it. And those stores are all local, all independently owned. They they give jobs to humans that live in your community and, and the benefits of all that. So that Black Friday did that. We never would have thought about that when you start thinking about Record Store Day. Right. You know? Right. And we never would have thought, oh, well, you know, we should probably have a conference for these stores because, you know, 10 years in, what can we do to help them? And we started having our own conference for them, sort of modeled on music biz, but taking some of the music biz you know, things that we learned by going to music biz, NARM, as it's, as it was previously known. Yes. And, and, and using that for record stores and make it because there isn't a conference just for these special unique businesses. All right, well, let's teach ourselves how to do that. What do stores need? And I'm so glad we did because when the pandemic came, we were really able to quickly work with you guys at music biz to really help the stores. I mean, I don't think it's an overestimation to say that what we did by teaching them, you know, or at least giving them the information of, okay, here's how you take a brick and mortar record store, which can't function in the next year, two years as a physical store, and you turn it into an online resource where you can still be cool, you can still be a record store but now you're serving your customers in a way that's safe for everybody. And a lot of these stores, they had to do that, you know, instantly Mm -hmm. and really change their mindset. And we were in a position to, and I really can't, I know I've told you privately and I've, I've said it to your entire team. We really couldn't have done it without you guys. The, the idea of holding zoom calls where stores could talk to each other and learn about, well, how do I sell online? What are my options there? What are these stores, you know, six states away doing that works for them? And at the end of those two years, the stores came out of it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. I think we did a good thing there. And that's because Record Store Day has grown into this sort of structure to, to serve all of the record store community, not just the coalition stores, but every record store, and there are 1,400 pledge stores in the United States. That's a massive number. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it's so impressive, you know, when you think about how things felt when Tower closed. You know, yeah. it, it was, it really felt like, well, that's it. The, <laughs> it it really done. did. It really did. And, that, and that's the, you know, that's the, the thing that pop culture had in their minds and, or as a society. And, and the press really did, you know. I, I love journalists. I think there are some really great ones who really get Record Store Day and have been covering us for quite a while. But there are, were also some, and still are to this day, who are just like, take the negative and run with it without really looking into, is this truly the case? Are Record Store Day, are Record Stores closed and, and a wonderful thing of the past because Tower closed or because FYE is closing? I mean, Record Stores close for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's not all because people don't want them anymore. Mm -hmm. I think you look into those reasons and you'll see there's, there's plenty of stores. People are so surprised. There's stores, you know, you talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, well sure. LA, New York, there's great record stores there, but there are great record stores in parts of the country. You'd never think, Mm -hmm. you know, everywhere, Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas city, obviously the big music cities, you're, blessed in Nashville and Austin has great mm-hmm. stores and all of that. But I live in North Carolina and almost every city has a great 
if one, if not more record stores that serve different uh, groups of people and they're everywhere. They really are. Yeah. And you can find them if you go look and we encourage you to go look if you haven't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In records... fact, you can look at recordstoreday.com and there's a search bar there. There you go. Perfect. Um, and you know, that's, that's like coming full circle to what we talked about at the very beginning of this interview, you know, it's a unique experience. So if you haven't had it, go have it, go walk into a record store, a physical record store and, and, you know, find out what that's all about because there's all sorts of not in, in addition to the regular, you know, daily stuff that happens in a record store, they have shows, bands oh. come and play at, in record stores. And, and that's an amazing experience too. I think everybody loves those. I, I love in stores. I, I always have. I do too. It's such a unique, even if it's, you know, when I say they're an intimate experience, people always think, oh, it's acoustic and all of that. And yeah, that that happens (laughs) a lot, but you can also get, you know, blown away by an in-store when the band is, you know, three feet in front of you and fully plugged in. And those, those are amazing events. And my very favorite, I'm, I'm often asked, like, what are your favorite record store day titles? And they are almost always when they come full circle and it's recorded in a record store and then released on record store day, yeah. that is, that is my very favorite of, of any of them. And there's been just such great, such great in-store events. And, you know, I think artists like it just as much as the people standing in between the racks, watching them do it. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. Such bands a different experience. Yeah. Such a different experience. Yeah. And it's also different because, you know, most of the time it's at like three in the afternoon. And so yeah. everyone who's waiting to talk to you afterwards is not completely wasted, generally speaking. <laughs> Sometimes they are. It's possible. But but generally they're not. I remember we did a, a record store, an in-store with Cindy Wilson because I put out Cindy mm-hmm. Wilson's solo record. And it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. I think it was at Waterloo in Austin. And I mean, she came up to me afterwards and said, that was the most fun I've had in years. She's like, that was so fun to just be able to play to people, see their faces, you know, in between the record racks and and then talk to them afterwards. You know, she said it was just so fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see how for an artist, I can, I can, first of all, I can see how it would be kind of scary to get close to get that close to your fans for, for <laughs> sometimes <some> yes <laughs> but i can also see how it kind of would be refreshing to ground you because i have i cannot play a musical instrument and i cannot sing a note but so i've never been on stage i've never had this experience but i would imagine it's a little bit isolated and even when you're on stage the lights are seeing you may see what's happening in the front row but you don't necessarily actually see people smiling and singing along at an in-store event, no matter how big the store is, like even if you're at, I, th- I think Amoeba is probably everybody's idea of the big record stores. Even when you're at Amoeba and you're on stage, you can, you can see people. You can, you can really see that these people are here for you and, and that really they're just like you. And it kind of, I would imagine, bring the artist back down to just being someone looking for musical inspiration walking around the racks. And I don't think I've ever been to an in-store where either before or after the artist is like, can we just go shopping? Can yeah. we walk around? Yeah. And that's, that's kind of like, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's kind of the magic power of a record store is that mm-hmm. if it's done right, you know, if, if the record store is doing its job, everybody feels comfortable and everybody can learn from each other about, you know, great music. And, and that is such a, a relation point, you know, from human to human. Um, Cindy, Cindy Wilson may have picked some of the same records out of the used bin as I would have, and that would make me so feel so cool that, <laughs> <laughs> that I would do that. You know, I love watching those videos where artists go through and 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 even regular people when they go through and pull out like, what did you buy? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is what's in your bag? It's just so it's such a great glimpse into their character and makes a great human connection. Oh, I love that record too. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, I mean, that is, like you said, such a connection point, a human connection point. But speaking of human connection points, Carrie, I could talk to you all day, as you know, because <laughs> I have done that. Yep. Uh, but I'm going to uh, I just wrap this up since, you know, we actually have to we go have about to our do- actual real jobs. <laughs> do work. <laughs> So, Carrie Colleton, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? 
Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I will join you anytime you ask. Yay. Okay. Take care. Thanks. My guest today is Carl Mello, the director of brand engagement for Newbury Comics. Hey, Carl. Hello, Portia. Good to talk to you. So, hey, we are talking about Record Store Day today. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. 15 Yay. years of Record Store Day. So, uh, how did you first find out about Record Store Day? Uh, well, I've been with Newbury since time began, so I was there <laughs> when, when it first started. And, uh, yeah, we had people from the organization were actually at the convention where the idea was sort of hatched. Uh-huh, so, yes. so we were kind of in on it from the, the very beginning and, and have been supportive the whole time. Yeah, that's awesome. And what do you, like, what would you say in general Record Store Day has done for the world of, of independent record stores? Uh, I think you, you kind of can't overstate it. Um, I know, you know, people like to complain about this <laughs> or that when it comes to Record Store Day, but in terms of, like, Getting changing how people view record stores and moving things forward regarding like the demand for vinyl, Record Store Day has done more than anybody to sort of change the narrative on that stuff. Because when they started, uh, I'm sure you remember, like record stores were kind of like a thing where all all record stores did was close <laughs> at that time, and it was. Uh, You'd really, when you tell people you work at or for a record store, they'd be like, ooh, okay, uh, I guess you'll need a new job in a couple of years. And all of that, sort of the, the changes that, that make you know, record stores in, uh, in such a healthy place these days came about due to Record Store Day. Yeah, that's, I, I would agree. And you know, I was coming at it from the label side because at the time I had a label, and it just was such a a great idea for those of us who were still pressing vinyl or making seven inches or doing anything. Cause I remember it really well. We tried to get in there on the first year and I think we made 2009 uh, with a split seven inch, but it just seemed like a godsend cause we could make, you know, 500 split seven inches and sell them all. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. It was a, a, a really beautiful thing. So I really wanted to talk to you, Carl, in particular, because you and I have talked in the past uh, about, you know, all sorts of record, store related matters. And one of the things that I think is really interesting from your perspective is what types of records and vinyl you're seeing getting sold in your store these days. Mm. So this is the most fun part of everything these days is that over the past, you know, couple of years, the age of the vinyl customer at our stores has dropped dramatically, which is a beautiful thing. And I think some of the challenges that we face right now are how do, how do we work with that information? Because at present, when you look at whether it's release schedules in general, or the record store day list or whatever, these are kind of like rolling stone release schedules in a TikTok world. And we haven't kind of made that leap to really uh, not super serving boomers and uh, working with the, the younger customers who are supporting us right now. Right. So you told me a story about last Christmas, um, the the titles that were flying off the shelves in your store. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's still the case today. Like, I was looking at our results for 2022. Nine out of the top 20 albums are hip-hop. 16 out of the top 20 artists have debuted in the 21st century. So... You know, you still have your Beatles and, and Fleetwood Mac, Nirvana, and Wu-Tang in there. But for the most part, it's it's all newer artists. That's amazing. And I, I remember you telling me that BTS, you couldn't keep BTS in the store. And I thought, my God, BTS on vinyl? Like, who would have thought? Like, any any of the... K-pop is, is really wild and uh, has done, I think, just as much in some ways to bring back physical product as Record Store Day has when you look at like the last five years or so. Is that because of something that the labels, the, the K-pop labels are doing? Like, are they releasing deluxe versions or, or is it just the existence of that band? No. Well, it's, yeah, I, there's a BTS factor that is just like <laughs> crazy, but it's also how they do what they do. K-pop packaging is, is really phenomenal. It's this elevated sort of fancy 
thing where you'll get like stickers and, and games and cards and, and all sorts of stuff in with the package where it's not just a, you know, $7 CD where you're like, will this do? The K-pop packaging is actually the art direction's perfect and, you know, people will happily spend $30 for those things where they won't spend $7 for kind of a, a regular, you know, eh CD. I, I can't. I just love one of the things about our industry, you know, where you live through the, you know, streaming revolution and all of a sudden everything's going to digital. But it's like the very fact of that sort of re- made people remember that they love to look at beautiful things. You yeah, know? It, it, absolutely, Portia. And we had kind of this scenario where in the last two years, people were stuck at home mm-hmm. <laughs> saying, I need some cool shit in my home to interact with to make me happier. And that's what, uh, you know, really, as far as like music sales and manga and all this stuff that we sell started going through the roof with the pandemic because people are stuck at home and they're like, hey, how do I make this environment better for me? You know, totally. Well, Carl Mello, that is really what I wanted to get out of you today. So thank you so much for being with me today on the future of what? Portia, can I mention one more thing? Oh, absolutely. So for the battle that we're fighting to have like more younger artists represented, more current hit artists represented Mm -hmm. in Record Store Day and release schedules in general, just so people are aware, right now in the Billboard Top 50 albums, 20 of those titles are not available on vinyl. Wow. For the Spotify Top 50 tracks, 41 of those 50 tracks are not available physically. Wow. Wow. So we really have um, an uphill battle, I think, to do a better job reflecting uh, the world as it is right now and helping our younger customers get what they want. Thank you for that uh, proselytizing moment. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take it. All right, Carl. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Parsha. Be well. Take care. You're listening to The Future of What? Follow us on all platforms at MusicBizAssoc, A-S-S-O-C, to find out more about MusicBiz and hear about what's coming up next. My guest today is Brittany Benton. She's the owner of Brittany's Record Shop in Cleveland, Ohio. Brittany, welcome to The Future of What? Hello. Thank you for having me. I am super happy to have you. So today we are talking about Record Store Day. And I wanted to talk to you because you are a nice representative of someone who owns a small record store. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know from your perspective what the effect on vinyl sales and just sales in general at retail has been of Record Store Day. Yeah. Um, are you talking about for me personally? Yeah, I, just what I mean, you've... I yeah. can, I, I've, I've talked to some of my uh, Cleveland brothers in vinyl shops, and and we've had very different experiences. I'd say mine have almost all always just been positive, and and I think the key to Record Store Day, where I found my uh, my sweet spot, is that my store is in, is pretty niche, especially for Cleveland, since I focus in genres like hip hop, reggae, soul, and jazz, which always have a very uh, high demand within the niche um, and which is also very underrepresented in 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 my area Cleveland Ohio or Northeast Ohio the idea that people can go and collect some custom vinyl collectible vinyl in a genre that everybody's um, kind of hurrying to circle back for such as hip-hop a lot of the reggae a lot of the soulful pop that's out right now people are really excited about that and I think it's also um, been great for capturing and cultivating my uh, demographic of customers, which is heavily uh, younger Gen X to millennial, um, pretty 50-50 down the gender uh, demographic, but a customer that loves diverse sounds, definitely loves a lot of hip hop, soul, electronic, and all the fusion. And I just make sure I have that for them. And I told them, um, because it's it's reintroducing people to vinyl all over again, that this is that album, this is a collectible. They're only gonna put out a short number of these, or this is also what you get when you get this box set. So as people are starting to uh, build their, uh, their vinyl collections, Record Store Day has been something that's been really getting a lot of cachet, especially because you also have a lot of cross uh, pollination 
in my in my demographic of customers with a lot of the sneaker heads, vintage collectors of streetwear. So to have some custom collectible vinyl fits right into that retro slash futuristic, you know, kind of curated vibe that everybody's getting to right now or absolutely. has been into, I'd say, for the really the last five to 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you yourself are a DJ. Do you find that a lot of your customers are DJs? I would say more than more than I had expected, but also in my shop, I create a lot of DJs. So for example, if I know somebody um, is a repeat customer, I kind of take note of the things they're buying. So, you know, for example, I have a customer named Max. He has a very um, soulful, jazzy kind of ear. And I'm looking at the records that he's buying over the last few times he stopped in and I'm like, hey, you know, you'd be able to put together a great two hour set. Why don't you come into the shop? I'll give you some store credit and you be the DJ. And you got some people's like, I don't, I don't, I, I've only used one turntable. I'm like, that's no problem. I can show you in five minutes. And so a lot of times on the weekends, what I have is customers that I put them to work. Wow. So I'll have them spinning records and and they'll create the sound. And next thing you know, they, they start catching the bug. But um, a lot of my friends, like um, this coming, a record store day, I have half our uh, DJs, uh, which is really two at the moment. And the other half for the other time slots are uh, customers. And sometimes I have people from my monthly beat makers night. They'll come and play some of their original beats for 40 minutes. And I'll mix them in with some DJs. And, you know, it's just a good time. So it's, it's kind of hard to tell who's all a DJ because there's been so many aspiring DJs in the last few years who kind of I feel they come to me to ask for permission like is it okay to want to be a DJ is it, it's like they're looking for my blessing and I'm just like you know what let's do it sometimes even if they don't have a lot of uh, vinyl records I'll um, have them bring in their laptop and and just kind of show them a few things and give them store credit so they can keep buying vinyl then usually the next time they'll start putting some things together so you know I, I definitely I pride myself on the shop has been kind of like an incubator space to encourage people to get more into making beats and spinning vinyl and and you know start pushing sliders and twisting knobs because a lot of people can get really intimidated by all the machinery so I'm just here to demystify all of that. Oh that is amazing. So I think that this is such a great testimony. I'm super excited that I got to talk to you about it because you know when I spoke to Carrie Colleton who was one of the founders of Record Store Day they said that you know she said what they were really trying to do is get the focus back to record stores, you know, physical brick and mortar record stores. And I feel like one of the reasons is because physical brick and mortar rec record stores are communities and are amazing places where amazing stuff happens. And your shop, what you just said, is an exact example of that. Yeah, I, I feel like it takes a weird tortured soul to become a, uh, a record <laughs> store owner, but it's like your love for music supersedes everything. So, and I know from my story and, and several friends I know who are in the vinyl business, the record store kind of became an extension and a natural progression of the things we do. Like, you know, I come from a music collecting family that always had all the vinyl, all the tapes, and eventually all the CDs. And so we always had like a, a library of just music around our house. And then I'd make beats. It was just me and my little SP-303 and I'd be sampling loops from CDs, tapes, and vinyl. And then I got into DJing. So it was just like vinyl had always been um, an important part of my musical growth and progression. So after a while, it just, it just seemed like a, the, the next step, my friend who had a record store and he was selling it, he had approached me and he's like, you know, I think you would be a good custodian of the shop. And that really meant a lot to me. And, you know, I definitely leapt at the opportunity to be a shop owner. And me and my then business partner, we went in and uh, did some really good things. And then about a year later, we uh, parted ways and I changed the name to Britney's Record Shop. And we went from having a shop that sold just about everything from hip hop, classical, country, you name it. And I said, this time around, I really wanted to hone in and um, just strip strip everything down to a niche of what I didn't see in the city of Cleveland. So there was no shop that specialized in hip hop or reggae um, or soul music. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you're the shop that sells all the black stuff. And I mean, you could look at it that way. But at the same time, it was just for a city that we, is 55 percent black. We were heavily underrepresented in the style of music that was being sold. And, and, and I kind of push back when a lot of people say black music because I feel soul music, jazz music, it's all American music. 
music. We all grew up listening to Motown. Mm -hmm. We all spent the 90s kind of hearing songs by, um, you know, whether it was Death, Death Row to Death Jam. And there's always been so much cross-pollination across the genres. I just felt like I was closing the loop as far as like musically representing who we were as a community. Absolutely. And do you find that uh, that labels are getting with the program in terms of putting out some uh, some of the music on vinyl that they perhaps didn't put out when they when the record first came out? You know, I've every label person that I've spoken to, and I can definitely give you a shout out, uh, Portia, because a lot of people would circle back and send me uh, emails after, you know, we have our meetings and whatnot, and, and ask me what I thought, or how was I able from a small shop to sell so many units of a particular title that isn't tracking well anywhere else. And I, I was just saying that, you know, you don't have to print hundreds of thousands of vinyl like it's 1985 to actually well represent the artist on your label. Like if you're a Major label, you could actually do some small one-time releases of, of some of these LPs. And also I've been begging them to come back and bring back some of these 12 inches mm. and, and these seven inch singles, because once the single got killed as a physical format, it kind of, everything kind of took a, a, a step back. And this was what, 20, 30 years ago. But I think as a DJ who vinyls, who, who DJs with vinyl and DJs with a uh, laptop, the fact that the labels are not producing the vinyl for their contemporary artists, it's, it's 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 holding back the vinyl DJ community. Mm. Like every now and then you might get a really cool uh, vinyl of a release that you can play at a party, but it's usually like this giant living room edition box set that they're marking up and you don't want to bring it to a party with you. And, and it's like when you go to a vinyl DJ night, as much as I love old music, it's like you don't really hear, you know, fresh new sounds that dominate the majority of a vinyl music set because that music that everybody else is playing digitally or streaming isn't available on vinyl. So I'd even told a couple label reps, like if you just did a, a run of 5,045s or like some of the smaller things, um, the smaller ones, you would definitely make your money back. The vinyl community would be happy. The DJs would be happy. A lot of these parties would be a little bit more progressive. And I think it also encourages uh, bootlegging because there's a lot of uh, people who still might have some underground cutters and, and lathes and stuff. And they're offering, yo, well, how much you want for a seven inch of this song? Just send me the wave or the MP3 file. Like, you know, a lot of people are gonna pay for the song that they want, especially if you're like a vinyl DJ. So I, I don't think it's as much of a rampant problem it, right now, but I feel that where everything is starting to give you the option of you can do the digital or the cloud-based um, accessing of music. But then there's a lot of us who like, you know, still like the physical. So I feel like the label's doing a small nod to put some of their artists, give them that representation, even on a short order of some vinyl, it wouldn't be too much of an issue. In fact, like I said, I think it would be progressive. I put out my own vinyl before as an independent artist, so I know that it's not going to break a major label's back to at least put out a thousand <laughs> to five thousand copies of a vinyl. Because I'll see some of these music videos, I'm like, it had to be five thousand dollars to get that that rented Ferrari that everybody's rapping in front of. You could have put that into some vinyl, and uh, <laughs> you know, and made a lot of DJs very happy. And I just feel like it will also kind of push away the us and them. Uh, that I see between a lot of the vinyl DJs and the non-vinyl DJs. Like where the DJ community is huge and it's growing, but there's still a, a bit of snobbiness and, and, and ageism that goes on. But I feel like if a lot of the younger DJs or if you were a trap music DJ or, or you played something that's a little bit more poppy, you should be able to still get the 45. You, now you have to make sure you get it before it sells out. But like, I, I think that it would still, it would still be a, a good look. That's awesome. Well, Brittany Benton, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What. <laughs> thank you for having me. My guest today is Larry Jaffe, the author of Record Store Day, the most improbable comeback of the 21st century. Larry, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you, Portia. Great to be here. So great to have you. Um, so I'm a huge fan of Record Store Day. And for full disclosure, everyone should know I'm on page 45 of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so we just get that out of the way. Um, listen, I want to know how, what, what, uh, what was the impetus for you to write this book? Well, strangely, I have Michael Kurtz's ex-wife, Sheila Valentine, to thank 
<laughs> for for introducing me to Michael. Huh. I, for 25 years, had published a newspaper about a British TV show called EastEnders. And in 2015, I did an email blast that said, you know, if the BBC knew what they were doing, they would reissue this single. I had a copy of the original 1985 7-inch of the EastEnders theme song. If they knew what they were doing, they would reissue it for Record Store Day. And then Sheila had was one of my subscribers and said, you know, my ex-husband is one of the co-founders of Record Store Day. So then I said, oh, I'd love to meet him. And it turned out we were about 20 blocks away from each other in Harlem. Um, <laughs> so like the next day, Michael and I met for coffee. And oh, so we, yeah, we became friends and we worked together a little bit after that on a couple different projects. That's awesome. So, you know, I mean, I think most people are familiar with Record Store Day, but it's the 15 year anniversary this April. And, you know, what's fun about this book is that I think people don't know really how it got started. And to be honest, I was one of those people at the time, which was 2008, the very first Record Store Day happened. I was running an independent record label called Kill Rock Stars. And I believed when I heard about Record Store Day that it was something that had just been created for us, the indie labels. I was uh, completely wrong, <laughs> well, as it turns out. Yeah, actually, the, one of the goals of the book is to correct misconceptions and, and really tell what Record Store Day is and how it operates. But I was late to the party at myself. In fact, far later than you. So in 2008, I... Um, pretty much sort of renounced physical media. <laughs> I, Ooh, I, really? Yeah, I was, I was editor of a magazine that covered DVD and CD production that went out of business in 2006. And I was just downsizing. I sold 3,000 CDs and I, I, it took me to 2010 actually to sell my, uh, most of my 4,000 LPs. I kept a, about a 150 or so. Wow. And within two years, I realized what a mistake I made. But I, <laughs> honestly, I did not even know about Record Store Day until 2014. I mean, I missed wow. the first six years. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I obviously had to play catch up and realized all the great limited editions that I missed out on. But I have to say, when I first started this project, I realized it wasn't about the limited edition records. It's really about the record store culture that was very important to my youth. And, you know, especially baby boomers, we know what it's like. This is where you meet friends, you meet bandmates, you, um, you know, romances begin, marriages even start sometimes. It's a really important piece of popular culture. Um, it's just, but getting back to the subtitle of the book, it's just totally improbable that this could happen. But, you know, the acumen and drive of um, Michael Kurtz and Carrie Colleton um, and the, the rest of the team that had played a role, and that's all pretty much detailed in the book, not to mention the thousands of um, independent record stores that said, look, we, we, we have an important mission here <laughs> in our communities. And, and they pulled it off. I mean, it's like yeah. they moved mountains to yeah. revive something that most people thought was dead and buried. Yeah, and it's, and it's been really amazing because of the way that it's opened up not only vinyl as a product, but the record store experience, right? The walking into a record store, the looking, you know, the talking to people, the getting the clerk to help you, you know, find something you think you're going to love. And it's happened, it's, it's happened in so many ways. You know, I feel like I've heard, you know, stories from, you know, people who are under 30, let's say, <laughs> some of whom who work for me, um, you know, who never owned a vinyl record in their lives. And, it, this helped them just find out about it. And, and it, you know, it, this the door opening led to, you know, a, a whole world. And I think that's what's really exciting about it. The other interesting thing to me about it is young people being excited about it, such as my daughter, who's 23 years old. When she was in college, she said to me, um, you know, tell me about this record collecting stuff. 
<laughs> so I realized it was in her genes. That was like about four or five years ago when she, she said that. And I ended up getting her first a record player, then a better turntable. And she and I go record shopping. And, and she experienced Record Store Day uh, last year with me. So uh, the book is dedicated to her, uh, Aunt wow. Annie. And um, in it, I say, you know, she's going to inherit a great collection from me. Uh, as long as her uh, big brother Jake uh, gets to keep the uh, the Black Sabbath records, even if he just puts them <laughs> on the wall, because he's a, so he's a millennial and he doesn't care less about vinyl. Right. So I think it's the same percentage of like fifteen percent of our you know age group versus fifteen percent of you know Gen Z. It's it's really and I teach college students and I I see this you know firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, but I mean the the way that people have gotten back into vinyl even just for the covers you know it's like even if they do just hang it on their wall as art i think that was you know you make the point in the book you can't hang a digital file on your wall it's not something you can look at it's not something you can appreciate so you know there there's just so many ways that um that vinyl records and the record store experience are you know new things for a younger generation that is that they are loving like finding out about yeah, I remember Tom Silverman at a new music seminar, it must have been around 2014 or so, was saying that he thought the vinyl comeback had traction. And he, he specifically said that a digital file is a crappy gift. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tommy has always been a visionary. He's always been ahead of his time. I remember seeing, I remember seeing him present a streaming chart in like 2007 or something when none of us thought streaming was going to be a thing. Yeah. And he was like, look, it's the wave of the future. It's true. <laughs> Absolutely true. Yeah. Amazing. So what are you looking, you know, what are you thinking that this book will do, you know, in terms of, of, of opening eyes and giving awareness? I think, you know, like I said, I think it's a great gift for people to, you know, somebody in their family is into it, right? So, but I mean, one of my goals for the book was to try to figure out why do people stand in line the night before with a list right. in their hands and they have all kinds of anxiety, will they get it, you know? You know? Right. And I also quote a French economist who wrote in 1977 that people buy records in particular that they'll never listen to. And I think that sort of appeals to any record store day consumer. I mean, I've acquired hundreds of records over the past six years on record store day much of i haven't listened to <laughs> so i but I, I i like knowing i have them <laughs> you know right. and i think that's that's the common denominator with a lot of the people who participate but you know i also have to point out that carrie colleton really pointed out a very important thing independent record store that sells only used records still can participate in record store day you know yeah. it's about the culture it's about throwing a party now, obviously, the pandemic you know, threw a monkey wrench for the past two years into that. But, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, not trying, we're, you know, we scheduled a, a regular record store day, which, by the way, this year falls on my birthday, April 23rd. I mean, how, I can't even make that up. <laughs> so, That's amazing. It is amazing. When I'm 64, uh, thanks, to, <laughs> when you're 64. thanks to Paul McCartney. Yeah. We there apologies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So what, while researching the book, Larry, what was the most interesting thing that stood out to you that just really jumped out? Some of the resistance from uh, major labels initially. I mean, there's an amazing story about what happened in France and how um, universal, I might as well just, you know, because it isn't black and white there. The French subsidiary of Universal initially gave so much friction to the coordinator there. And he had already won the blessing of Record Store Day U.S. and was in uh, meetings with the other European representatives. And they were talking about, you know, some of this special product was going to be reserved for France. And they said, no, we can't do that. And he said, well, call your U.S. you know, people. And so David made a couple of calls. And sure enough, like within days, they had everything that was promised to them. I, I, I think it's a really kind of unique uh, story about the behind the scenes machinations of how this business works 
And again, it goes to the credit of Michael Kurtz really, uh, you know, letting everyone see the big picture of, of how this really helps everyone. And of, of course, all three majors did jump on the bandwagon. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it's interesting because one of the things I didn't know going into reading this book was that the majors had been courted from the very beginning. And that's why I said, you know, I thought as the indie labels, because the indie labels had been the people who still were making vinyl at the time in the early 2000s, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, they're they're recognizing us for all of our efforts <laughs> to keep this format alive. Well, I mean, the, the one label that really was courted in the beginning was Warner and they were right. already doing some things. Uh, Grover Beery. Um, there's a great section in there about his initial meetings with Michael and how um, they were putting out a Neil Young's greatest hits. And, you know, Michael explained the concept and he and Grover immediately said, yeah, let's do it. That that sounds great. So, I mean, it, it was a few years before the other two really expressed any interest in and, and actually um, a, an executive from uh, Sony, you know, says that in his world, it takes several years of a trend for them to really, you know, pay attention. At least that that's his own company, the company he works for. Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, the that's the difference between majors and indies tends to be just that, you know, indies are smaller and we are way more nimble. So we can, you know, it, it, and it usually run by one person. So, you know, that person can make a decision and, and the majors are large corporations with lots of decision makers. And, you know, it, it obviously takes longer to turn the ship. But that I thought that was really interesting because that's been one of the misconceptions that's come up over the years is that the majors are ruining Record Store Day by, you know, putting all this product in the pipeline that then doesn't allow indie labels to get their product pressed because, you know, because the the shortage of number of pressing plants and, you know, the difficulty right now we're having with supply side. But, you know, it's it's just interesting to find out that that's not actually the case. Well, also, um, the book, you know, it goes behind the scenes of some real milestones of Record Store Day. So, for example, when Jack White decided he was going to press a record, well, do a performance and have the record several hours later, Ben Blackwell provides a blow-by-blow blow how, how they pulled that off and all the anxiety that they might not succeed, you know, after promising right. it. Um, and he says in the book, you know, I think we only did 800 copies of the single, but we did get them there. <laughs> you know, and speaking of Jack, um, you know, I had the good fortune of introducing him and Ben at Making Vinyl. And again, Record Store Day, uh, Making Vinyl is the, uh, the B2B uh, conference about the global revival of vinyl record manufacturing that we started in 2017. And Record Store Day came in as a, you know, like a founding um, partner of sorts, a sponsor. And it was really important to my co-founder, Brian Ekus, and myself that we win their support, you know. And my, you know, Michael has been uh, very helpful in the, in the uh, conferences that we've done since then. Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, uh, that if, if for someone who didn't find out about Record Store Day till late in the game, you certainly jumped in with both feet. Well, you know, part of it was... I, I, let me tell the story, and I mentioned this in the book. So in 2012, still had some remnants of my CD collection and Mojo magazines and uncut magazines. I was trying to still downsize stuff. And I'm at a record store in Long Island, and he's tallying up how much money he's going to give me in cash for my stuff. Um, there was no vinyl involved in that transaction, though. And I'm looking through his dollar bin, and there's this interesting record. It was a burlesque jazz album on Cameo Parkway from the early 60s. And I'm about to give him my dollar. He goes, keep it, you know. And I put it on my turntable at home, and I realized I'm back. <laughs> I, am, I, 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 I love this stuff. What, I was such an idiot to sell it. Why the hell did I sell it? <laughs> and, and, but the interesting thing is it, it followed the same order that I did when I first became interested in CDs. Like I had this rule that I would not 
buy anything on CD that I already had on vinyl. Well, that went out the window pretty quickly. <laughs> right. And I remember the first um, new record I bought that was sealed uh, was Amy Winehouse's Back to Black, because and mainly because I couldn't find the CD. And then soon thereafter, I started buying all the stuff that I coveted, like, you know, Oasis and Beatles stuff and, you know, whatever, whatever I could find, Dylan. So it's an addiction, really, I have to say. I mean, luckily, I don't have any other addictions. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, you wouldn't be able to afford your vinyl. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Well, on that note, my guest is Larry Jaffe. He is the author of the upcoming book, Record Store Day, The Most Improbable Comeback of the 21st Century. Larry, thanks so much for being with me today on The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. Our theme song is Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five and is played by permission. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Today's show was engineered by Anthony Luciani and Clark Buckner at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center and was produced by Dana Rogers and Henrik Bick. I'm Portia Sabin, president of the Music Business Association. See you next time.